0: Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Amen. Greetings from all over the place. I uh, so glad to be back in my church home. Uh, I had the privilege of being here last Sunday, but not with you uh, specifically. Uh, hopefully, you were in the second service, but uh, I was tagged to preach for my pastor, so that's always an honor. And uh, so I didn't get a chance to greet you personally. Um, I was in uh, Nashville speaking to the Capitol Commission, they did their national ministry staff retreat and I didn't know a lot about that ministry, but I do now and you should. In 24 state capitals around the country, there are missionaries to the legislators. So in Sacramento, and I didn't know this, but 10 months of the year your legislators, representatives and senators. Gather four days a week. A lot of them fly out Sunday. They fly back Thursday night. So for 10 months of the year, they are not with their family. They're in Sacramento. And uh, so that is a challenging family schedule, and you unite that with the pressures on legislators as it relates to lobbyists and pressures from people to get them to conform to a particular Kind of thinking or voting, it is, and then you unite that with human depravity and just the reality of trying to be faithful when you're disconnected, isolated, and pressured. And so that's what your legislators deal with. Um, and there are people who have a heart to serve them. Uh, not so much. It's not anything to do with blue or red, conservative or liberal. It has everything to do with gospel strength. And biblical strength. It's Bible studies, it's counseling, Um, it's a fantastic ministry. And uh, 24 of our state capitals have that, which means 26 of them do not. Um, And uh, I do believe it's an important category and space to be considered uh, as it relates to spiritual discipleship and influence. So if you know someone that would consider being a missionary in that way, and there's support that's given from the ministry, but there's also raised support. But I was uh, deeply uh, influenced and impacted by the recognition of both the need and the uh, the commitment to meet that need around God's Word and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Capital Commission. Uh, you can Google it, and uh, it's a great ministry, and uh, I want to encourage you to consider praying for them, investing in them, good people doing good work, our kind of work, biblical work, and I was impressed with that. Then from Nashville, flew down to Birmingham to be in my home church, church I pastored for 27 years. Pre-COVID was the last time I had been there, and uh, it was just uh, it's, its like the family reunion, um, uh, hours of conversations, I did get to see Alabama lose to Tennessee on TV with real fans, and uh, out here, you don't know what a real fan is. Uh, The SEC, big games, Tennessee-Alabama was monumental, first time Tennessee won that game in 15 years. You came to church to hear all of this, I know, but this is cultural, and there are other parts of the country where some things matter, and... uh, You've got UCLA doing good, USC, but nobody seems to care unless you graduated from those schools. Yeah, i got a couple, right? I care. You know? <laughs> yeah, Joe, it's been a long time since UCLA had a game, a season like this. Um, but anyway, I just uh, wanted to really relate to you what a joy it was to reconnect with people I love and um, just have the chance to share stories of God's work. One of my elders who served with me died suddenly a couple of weeks ago, tumbled down some stairs at a beachside resort outside of Destin, Florida, a place called Santa Rosa, really, really beautiful, and just tripped and hit his head, damaged the frontal lobe such that he couldn't function independently of machinery, and he's with the Lord. And that funeral was Friday when I was there. So I had the opportunity to uh, be in a space that, was both sad, but important. And I was grateful to be there and uh, to kind of enter into that space of need and <laughs> spiritual encouragement for a family that would have never thought that could happen to their father. I married the children, two boys and a girl, to their spouses. And so it was, it was just a precious opportunity to be in a, a very important family space and uh, at a very, very difficult time. So I was grateful for that. And I'm grateful to be back with you. And uh, so if you'll take your Bible and join me and James, we're going to start in. got a couple of weeks that I can hopefully tag together. Um, And I want to thank you, too. Uh, The elders were given an appreciation gift, um, and I was a recipient of that. My wife faithfully delivered it to me um, because Mark Curry was concerned that that might not happen. (laughs) And uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's a reflection on you, Karen, or me, but the net net is we're very grateful. Thank you for your generosity and kindness. Uh, we're just grateful to be a part of this special group at Grace Church. Well, we're we've made our way to James chapter 4, and I know that's an amazing accomplishment for somebody like me. We've been kind of plugging along periodically in this book, just a reminder, and if you're our guest today, welcome. This is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, James the Just, the pastor at the great church at Jerusalem, writing to persecuted believers who've been driven out of Jerusalem. Apparently he has heard, as reports have been made, that perhaps the persecuted dispersed are not living consistent with their Christianity, either because they're not well taught or there's compromise. But at a minimum, they need coached. And so the pastor of the church at Jerusalem writes this, and it may be the oldest letter in the New Testament, very early, sends this letter out to the dispersed body of Christ to say, this is how Christianity is to be lived out. This is faith at work. It's more than the claim of a profession and belief in Jesus Christ. It's a lifestyle that validates that confession. It is very, very relevant because there's not a Christian who is not potentially vulnerable to making claims they don't validate with their life choices. And what I like about this little letter of five chapters is there are these imperatives, these coaching statements from the authoritative, prophetic, but yet loving pastoral voice that says, hey, you need to do this, or you need to stop doing this. This doesn't measure up. This is not the lifestyle, this is the way I like to say it, the lifestyle and convictions of a (laughs) biblical Christian. Biblical Christians live a life that validates their faith. And a life that doesn't live faith has no hope for the future. It is vain faith. It is empty faith. James says, chapter 2, it is useless. It's useless for today, and it's useless into eternity. Faith works. That's the theme of this book. And I have been offering to you certain claims... Of real Christianity. In the last one, we looked at chapter 3, 13 through 18. Real Christians employ heavenly wisdom. That's what James would say. Gently doing good and promoting peace. Real Christianity has an expression. It's gentle and it's motivated by divine wisdom. And so, as a Christian, genuine faith is proven, it is demonstrated by gracious wisdom as it displays it and dispenses it and the fruit it produces. This is what a Christian is supposed to affect as an outcome, peace. Right relationships are the evidence of real Christianity. Now obviously not universally and always because sometimes you encounter people that you despite and your proactive pursuing of right relationship it's not possible because there are two people in the relationship. And whether you're proactively pursuing peace, deploying heavenly wisdom or not, it doesn't guarantee peaceful outcomes. But what verse 18 says of chapter 3 is the seed That's the seed of heavenly wisdom and heavenly knowledge. The seed whose fruit is righteousness. Now righteousness is right with God, right with people, verse 18, is sown in peace. So when you live your life, it's governed by wisdom from above and it's sown like seed in relational soil. And it's sown in peace. That's the method. It's peaceful method. And then it goes on to say, it's sown in peace by those who make peace. And the reason I'm punctuating this is because chapter 4 is going to be a contrast. Real Christianity is proactively pursuing peace. The goal is right relationship, peace. It is a priority. It is a pursuit of a true Christian. It's peaceful and peace as a consequence, and it requires heavenly wisdom. We talked about an acrostic, up-wisdom, the kind of wisdom described in verse 17. Pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. That's definitive or descriptive of heavenly wisdom. And when that is the characteristic of your human encounters and engagements, you're getting it from God. It's not because you're old or you've lived a lot of life. You get wisdom from heaven through God's word by his spirit. And that wisdom governs your words, your choices, your actions, and your attitudes. The effect of that is peace. Because that matters to God. And that should matter to us. What we ought not be as followers of Christ, as real Christians, is divisive, argumentative, rude. Titus chapter 3, it says, we ought to show perfect courtesy to all men. Now, that's a good thing to put above your mirror in the morning. My goal today is peace with my family, with my workmates, with the unsaved neighbors. I want to pursue peace. I want to do what I do in a manner that is peaceful to the end that I show perfect courtesy to all men because that's the plow of peace that tenderizes the human heart to consider a truth that is not easily welcomed. So that's what we learned in chapter 3 by way of a big beginning. Chapter 4, the contrast, a lack of peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? In other words, there's an antagonist competing with this priority. What's the source of that? word quarrels can be wars. It's long-lived conflict. Battles is the next word, and conflicts. So you've got wars and battles. Battles are subsets of a war. Wars last a long time. Conflicts are encounters and battles. The word quarrels actually typically involves war. Conflict with weapons. Quarrels, in this case, the translator chose verbal weapons. Conflicts typically has to do with battles without weapons. So James is saying, what is the source of the quarrels, the lack of peace, the encounters that are warlike, relational battle among you? "...is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace." Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. School teacher this week in New England seduces a teenager, convinces that teenager to take the life of her young husband. The motive, as it turns out, is she wanted the insurance money. A soldier survives the war over in the Middle East. He comes home to Detroit. He is murdered by his brother-in-law who has conspired with his sister who is married to the soldier. The motive? Insurance money. A husband recently, this week, fighting constantly with his wife, abuse unrelenting, decides that he is going to divorce her, leave his two small children, and after injuring her physically and trying to do her harm financially, the record shows that the reason he was motivated to dismiss this wife of his youth, is because she was no longer motivated for the good life. She had lost her motivation to have what they had not attained, unwilling to work like she had agreed to work. Conflict. It's on the rise both in and out of the family of God. Shelters for the abused are growing at an alarming rate. Divorces will be filed, more of them this year than ever on the grounds of physical or emotional abuse. More children will leave home this year than ever before on the grounds of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. A sobering and recent study suggests that one out of every four within the family of God have been or are in the process of being abused. Then you have the whole issue that is nationally in front of us. Uh, We see it at least in my little community because one of our representatives for Congress is pro-life and his liberal opponent is pro-death, pro-choice. And we see with the reversal of Roe v. Wade, and we see with the ads drumbeated in front of us, we watch the gatherings that relate to the taking of an unborn life. We look at the antagonism, we look at the frustration, we look at the anger that sits behind the issue of whether this baby deserves to live and it deserves to be born. And unlike days past, when you couldn't see into the womb, when you didn't know that by eight weeks they have little hands, they have little feet, they have little hearts that beat, they are many human beings dependent on a mother. And because of the aversion to honest disclosure, What an abortion is and the vacuuming out, the dismembering of that little body, which is that action, hidden from us, ignored by most, neglected, denied, or rejected. How is it that a human being can know that and choose that? I'll tell you how. What's written here? The desire to satisfy needs that are compromised when children interrupt the freedom to pursue those needs. It's not convenient to me. It compromises my future. It requires, especially if you're the mother, requires sacrifice at at a level every mother understands. Your life just changed. It's true that there are many who would adopt that child, but you don't even want to, you, I'm not saying you, that woman doesn't want to carry and endure the nine months. It's too inconvenient. It's too costly. It's too consequential. I couldn't help begin today by saying, what in the world is going on? We're in an angry culture. We're in a hurtful culture. And sometimes that hurt and that, that mentality enters into the life of the church. And I'm going to argue that what James offers to us by, do, by way of divine revelation is why we see what we see. What sits behind the fighting, the quarreling, the warlike reality doing whatever is necessary to satisfy our pursuits and our desires. This passage says the source of it all, and I'm going to label it, is worldliness. And what sits behind worldliness, the essence of it, the engine of it, the motivation is a damaging and destructive desire, a life committed to personal pleasure the policy of my life is satisfaction. And the mentality of my life is I will achieve that satisfaction. For me to not have it is not to live. And I'm entitled to it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And not only am I entitled to it, I'm committed to it irrespective of who pays or what the consequence is. If it's the take, an unborn life, if it's to take my wife's life, if it's to divorce my wife or my husband in order to uh, enjoy what it is I believe I need to have, so be it. Because desire is the engine and satisfaction is the motivation, self-satisfaction that will enable me to experience what it is I believe I need for life. Let me read to you. By the way, the key word in this passage, in my view, is the source is your pleasures. Do you see it? It's from the word hedonism. The designation of a philosophy that views pleasure as the chief goal of life. Pleasure is the fulfillment of inward desire. And hedonism is attached to worldliness because my pleasure, and you'll see it here, is not pursued by way of the source of heaven and God and the things of God and the Spirit of God. It's through the world in which I live. Demas, having loved this present world, abandoned ministry. That's the heart of this. This was not an uh, unknown consideration. I want to l- give you just some confirmation of perspective, not from the Word of God, but people in that era or who preceded that era, The kind of the human thought of the day, moralist. Philo writes this, a philosopher and a historian. Consider, and I'm quoting, consider the continual war... Which prevails among men even in times of peace, and which exists not only between nations and countries and cities, but also between private houses. Or Philo goes on, or I might rather say, it's present with every individual man. Observe the unspeakable raging storm in men's souls that is excited by the violent rush of the affairs of life. And you may well wonder whether anyone can enjoy tranquility in such a storm and maintain calm amidst the surging, billowing sea. No peace, no calm, no tranquility, raging storm, not just around us, but in us. He goes on to talk about the root of this bitter trauma and unceasing conflict. He says, is it nothing other than desire? Philo points out that the Ten Commandments culminate in the forbidding of covetousness or desire. The desire for the worst of the passions of the soul. It is because of passion, he writes, that relationships are broken. The natural goodwill changed into desperate enmity. Great and populous countries are desolated by domestic dissensions and land and sea filled with ever-new disasters by naval battles, land campaigns. Think Ukraine. Think Russia. Think the reality of the world in which we live. Unsatisfied, unfulfilled, motivated to have what I don't have. Desire for money, for glory, for pleasure. Lucian writes, all the evils which come upon man, revolutions and wars, stratagems and slaughters, spring from desire. Cicero, insatiable desire. Listen, here's what James is saying. The reason we fight with words or weapons, the reason we injure, whether it's in the body of Christ, because he's writing to Christians, is because of the desire to have what we don't have and what we value that the world provides some promise that we can obtain. The problem of a pleasure-dominated life is the absence of peace. The absence of a harvest of righteousness because you're sowing in order to secure out outgrowth or products, crops that are the result of your own efforts and a desire to satisfy your own passions. James says, residing within each of us is the potential of a bitter warlike campaign to gain satisfaction. And I'm going to argue on the inspiration of Scripture that if you want to trace back the cause of the conflict in your life, whether small or great, whether long-lived like a war or like a battle just had in your home or at work, there's going to be an engine of unmet desire and a false belief, a faulty belief that if I can get that, I can experience life. Let me give you a couple of things that come out of this passage by way of big idea. Here's number one. Here's the first thought, first three verses. The desires of the world, the desires for the world, the desires that are met by the world result, always result in human conflict. The second big idea is the desires of the world result in Heavenly conflict. The first three verses talk about the problems we incur because of our worldly desires, our pleasure-dominated life, and its impact on our human relationships. Four through six talks about its tragic, sobering impact on heavenly relationships. Both involve conflict. One, you're a human enemy of someone else by your behavior and words. You're an adversary. The other, you're a human enemy of a divine person. You become the enemy of God. Verse 1, that's reality. Verse 1, the reality is your problem... The reason you have quarrels, wars, battles, words without words, weapons without weapons is your pleasures, your hedonistic policy of life, which is satisfaction from the world at whatever it costs. That's why you wage war in your members. It's an internal battle. If members applies to you as a human being with your various Members of your body or members of the community of the body of Christ. Let's talk about the cycle. That's verse 2. So that's the claim. That's the reality stated. That's the way it is. Verse 2 is the cycle. The 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 cycle's illustrated. This is how it works. Number one, it involves... A lust, a desire. Lust is deep longing, it's yearning. It's a prefix with a word which means it's an amplified appetite. If you're on a diet and you walk by the box at the back or over at the table, which is now empty, if you walk by there and you see foodstuffs and you're on a diet, guess what you have? This. Epi thumeo, a deep yearning. Does I want that. You may even graduate to I need that. And if somebody competes with that one, you may do something to achieve that, which you'll have to apologize for. You grab it, you take it, you stab them so you can have it. (laughs) You lust is a deep longing. You lust and you do not receive. So there's a fancy to have a thing, and there's a frustration in getting that thing. There's a denial. Something's caught your fancy, a desire, a craving, a longing for a thing, a place, a position, a return, and you're thwarted. There's another word in this, verse 2, you are envious. Envious has got a dark side, you all understand that, but the heart of envy is zeal. I want it. The problem is you prevent me from having it. Or I can't acquire what you've already acquired. You possess what I wish I had. The home I have, the home you have, the position you have. The prestige you have, the reputation you have, the good looks you have, the dresses you wear, the suits you have, the places you go, you have it, I want it, I'm zealous to get it, and you have it, I can't have it, so I do not like you for it. It's zeal soured. It's soured because I don't have it, you have it, and it's dark because I not only want it from you, I want you to lose so I can have it. Verse 2 says, the engine or the, the, the path, the illustration of the cycle is you desire to have, you have an inner appetite, passion resulting from discontent or jealousy at another's possession of something that they have achieved, they have that you want. And verse 2 says, you do not have it. Verse 2, you want it, you don't have it, you're envious, and you can't obtain it. Housed in the cycle is a fancy, a desire, a passion, a deep yearning, and frustration, a barrier. I can't get it. And the combination of that Failure to obtain a thing you have not and cannot obtain, resulting in frustration which gives birth to what? Fighting, even to the point, verse 2, of committing murder. Committing murder. Now, you've got Jesus' statement in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. I say unto you, you you use certain kinds of words. You call a guy a bonehead, blockhead. You're guilty of murder. So this is... You can assassinate somebody verbally and you may even take their life physically. That's what the illustrations just recently in the news of people taking physical life, permanently exterminating someone's ability to live so they can have what they perceive they need. Now listen, don't miss this. You don't have to be the guy in the news or the gal in the news to injure deeply and to damage greatly because you want something and you can't get it i want what only they can provide they're refusing to provide it so i'm going to make them pay for it the antithesis of peace is murder it's it's injury it's damage You fight to attain a thing no matter what the cost may be. Now listen, you saw that with Cain and Abel. Cain lusted after Abel. He wanted the the acceptance, the status that Abel enjoyed with God. Abel had favor with God. So what did Cain do? He killed him. Joseph's brothers, he gets the coat, he gets the attention. What did Joseph's brothers do? Now, I know that Joseph behaved immaturely and told them all about the fact that they're going to bow down to him. Probably didn't help himself. But the fact is, their jealousy and their appetite to obtain the status that he enjoyed resulted in their what? We're going to kill him. We're going to leave him for dead in the hole. No, we can't do that. Let's just sell him to the traveling caravan of business people so we can essentially take him out of our life. We don't have to deal with him. What motivated that? Lust and envy. How about King Saul lusted after David because he had found favor with the people of Israel. What did Saul do? Attempted murder. King David lusting after Bathsheba. What did he do? He killed Uriah. Let's put this guy at the front so he can lose his life, so I can have his wife. King David. Anybody have a Bible with Psalms in it? Some of those Psalms say, a Psalm of David. If it can happen to them, it can happen to you. If it happened to them, it does happen to us. And James is giving you a picture, and if you want to find the symptom to your problem... Why is my family like this? Why is my relationship with my spouse like this? Why is my relationship with my friends like this? Somebody doesn't have what they want. And somebody's jealous because somebody else has it and they can't obtain it and they're willing to injure, to murder, to damage, to destroy in order to accomplish it. Here's a question. Do you have quarrels and conflicts? Ask yourself why. Let's talk about the problem communicated in verse 3, where it's really at the end of 2. Why you don't have what you need. Why it is your world is so conflicted and like a human battleground. You have not. Look at the end of verse 2. You have not. And I, I, I don't know. It, it just seemed, would have seemed wonderful to me if verse 2 would have ended after the word quarrel and verse 3 would have begun with these next two claims. We know the verses aren't inspired in terms of their separation, but I think it's important to recognize that at the end of 2 and the beginning of 3, he's going to give you the real problem. And it's not that they have it and you can't. Get it from them. The problem is the wrong method. And then the deeper problem is the wrong motive. The problem and the principle communicated resulting or revolving around that problem involves method. You do not have because you do not ask. Fulfillment is denied, this Deep yearning desire because the method deployed is not asking, not asking who? Hey, can I have your car? Can I have your house? It's not asking the person who has what you want. It's asking God who alone can provide, here it is, this is a key statement, the real solution and satisfaction to those yearnings. Listen, Ecclesiastes, among all the reasons it was gifted to us, provides us an illuminating understanding that you can have it all and not be happy at all. You can be the wisest, you can be the wealthiest, you can enjoy a lot of them more than anybody else has, and at the end of it, you can say, You know what this is? This is a soap bubble. This is the smoke of a candle ascending to heaven. I can't control it. I can't keep it. It doesn't satisfy. And what James is saying is, number one, you're using the wrong method. And the reason you're using the wrong method is because you don't understand the real solution. It's not self-satisfaction. It's not Harry making Harry happy. It's not Harry acquiring something. It's not Harry taking it from you because you have it and I want it. It's not me getting the last one or the first one that satisfies. The big answer or perspective of the Bible is it is God who gives life that satisfies. It's the woman at the well. You've had five of these, you're living with a guy who's not your husband. And you're still thirsty. This is a message from heaven to the people of God to understand why it is we have the antithesis of what real Christianity ought to manifest. We have division, injury, war, conflict, quarrels, where there ought to be peace. And then what sits behind it all is the illusion, the satisfaction Is something I can acquire through my own efforts. And the reason you don't have what satisfies, the real appetite quencher, thirst quencher of your deep desires, your longings, is because it comes from Him and you're not asking. You're not seeking it from the fountainhead of heaven. You're seeking it on your own. No matter what it costs. Because for you, that thing has become life to you. And the deception of the enemy is, it is life. The reality is, when you obtain it, you don't have it. No matter what it is. How big it is. How important it is. The title, the position, the prestige, the possession, the person. Get it, you will not have it. You do not have because you do not ask. And let me boil that down. You're not God-dependent. You're self-dependent. Because really the method is self-dependence versus God-dependence. It's either self-satisfaction, which is anti-faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And without faith, it's impossible to get anything from God. We learned that in chapter 1. You're built for something you can't obtain on your own. Ask for it. The second problem illuminated is in verse 3. The fulfillment is denied not just because of the faulty method. Failing to recognize God as the source. Utilizing human means, including violence, to secure your own desires. Not only a bad method, but a bad motive. You have not, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive. Here's the second because. Number one, you don't ask. That's self-satisfaction, self-dependence. And because you ask with wrong motives. Some of your Bibles say you ask amiss. But he tells you what the wrong motives are. Here it is, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here the problem is not that they're... Not praying, but rather they're praying amiss, that is, with selfish or fleshly motives. James says, receiving fulfillment through prayer by means of the source of satisfaction, God, it's contingent on proper motives. Have you ever wondered why you're unfulfilled? Have you ever wondered why you can ask God for a thing and that thing seems to be endlessly denied you? Here's one option. Because my goal is my satisfaction. And what's the problem with that? Because biblical Christianity is about God glorification and other people-centered action. It is Jesus, others, and you. I learned it as a little boy. My mother, Harry, Joy, J-O-Y, is the product of Jesus, others, and then you. Anybody hear that? Satisfaction is never the result of self-seeking satisfaction. Oh, I'm going to deploy the religious methodology. I'm going to be prayerful. I'm going to be religious. I'm going to be proper. But it's corrupt. It's corrupt because of the engine. The focus of it, the priority of it, it's still me-centric. And there is no kind of Christianity that's Harry-centric. Take up your cross, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. Deny yourself means to treat yourself as if it doesn't matter. It's the way the girl in high school treats you after you break up. You walk by, you're, you're nobody. She do not even look at you. <laughs> you know what that is? I deny you exist. When you deny yourself, you treat yourself as irrelevant to any equation. And if you have to suffer in order to serve him or them, that's what a Christian does. Did I tell you what the problem, what's going on? It's the worldliness that damages and destroys because of desires and satisfactions and pleasures we are determined to acquire, no matter what it costs. We'll trade our reputation. We'll trade a a relationship. You know why? Because I need this and I deserve this. And my life revolves around this. And you deny me this? Bad things happen. This passage in verse 3 ends with, you ask with wrong motives, and those motives are motivated by self-satisfaction. Let me read some words that are better than my own. The craving of pleasure in the end shuts the door of prayer. If a man's prayers are simply of the things which will gratify his desires, they are essentially selfish, and therefore it is not possible for God to answer them. William Barclay writes, In this life we have to choose whether to make our main object our own desires or the will of God. And if we choose our own desires, we have thereby separated ourselves from our fellow man and from God. Now, I'm out of time, which should surprise nobody. (laughs) But I want to read verse 4. You adulteresses, Isn't that a strange, deep, powerful label to assign to people who seek satisfaction, fail to use the right method, fail to be motivated for the right reasons, living in a life of turmoil, trauma, and conflict. And now James says, and just think, this is a pastor. He says brothers multiple times, dear brothers, beloved brothers. He's going to look at supposed brothers and say, You're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. You are a betrayer of God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is essential for self-satisfaction? See, I got to buddy up with the world because the world is my source. And when you look to the world and you companion with the world, we're going to talk deeper about this next week, what friendship is and what the world is meant by. Because I go to Yosemite, and it's the world God created, and I love it, and there's nothing wrong with it. But there is a system of the world governed by the God of this world that is anti-God, that is alien to God. And when I companion with that in order to fill this, I become a betrayer. And if you have ever endured or witnessed the betrayal of a covenant trust, you know that is a sobering label to bear. Here's the bottom line. You betray God and you hurt God's heart because God's under the impression that He's in an intimate covenant relationship with you, that He's your husband, Old Testament. Christ is your groom, and that you've been betrothed to Christ. And it's supposed to be an unadulterated affection and an enduring loyalty. And when you chase satisfaction from a source that's not heaven and your husband, your groom, it's adultery. I'm not saying that to sit on you heavy. I'm saying that because it helps me calibrate my reality. Because Harry can compromise easily, but not as easily if I see it for what it really is. Betrayal or faithful. So that's verse 4. I'm going to let it sit right there. Just because the next turn is desires of the world for the world result in heavenly conflict. Because the word enemy and enmity is in this verse. And that's a reality. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word Lord, there's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to not see ourselves, if we're honest, with patterns in our life where we have fallen short. We've been distracted. We've been deluded into believing that I have to have it. And if I can get it, I'll, I'll live. These desires are human. It's real. It's, it's the way God made me. And if I can just gratify that desire... I'll be happy. Lord, the source of the conflicts that contradict our claims is inside. And it's stimulated and amplified by a world that is designed to draw us away from the God who is the source and who has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And we can trade it, and we don't want to. And we can injure people around us, and we don't want to. And Lord, we we want to to represent Christianity, and we can misrepresent it. So correct us, align us, remind us, sober us, and convince us. We don't want to betray our trust. And I ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people say, Amen. amen.